So the story is that the baby was born, the baby could talk, and the baby said, you have to eat boiled eggs before midnight on this particular date, this is now back in March, um, and that will prevent you from getting COVID. Welcome to Post Pandemic. I'm Courtney Carthy. Irene and I worked at the ABC in Ballarat around 2008. She moved on to humanitarian work around the world, from the Pacific Islands to South Sudan, Bangladesh, and many others. At the moment, Irene's the project director for COVID 19 rumor tracking response at Internews. There's a link in the episode notes to find out more about Internews. But she's monitoring rumours spreading on social media across Southeast Asia in eight different languages, among other things. So this episode, it's a little longer than others because this issue of false information is getting more prevalent in the pandemic. About post-pandemic, each show we look at a specific part of society, culture or the world and ask a guest like Irene on this episode to imagine what it might be like when this is all over But also, what's happening now? Let's get to it. Irene Scott, thanks so much for being on this episode of Post-Pandemic. Give us a little sort of snapshot of what things look like for you day-to-day at the moment while we're in the midst of it, but, you know, looking towards the end. I feel like I'm very much still in the midst of it. So at the moment I'm running a project that is purely focusing on rumours and misinformation around COVID-19. So I'm eating, breathing, sleeping COVID-19, you know, living in the middle of it in Australia, but then also I have an inbox full of it. Every document on my computer is about it. Um, I feel like I'm thoroughly surrounded by it. And because I work in the humanitarian field, I mean, for many people in Australia, we might feel that the crisis is on its way out, you know, that we've flattened the curve, as they say. But we're looking towards other contexts like Africa, um, some of the countries in Asia that haven't seen a spike yet, um, and really some of those countries where it still has a chance to get um, you know, quite terrible um, over the next few months at least. Like is, is, are you seeing any predictions that are coming in where you know, it might go through Africa you know, in a way like Spain, Italy, maybe Iran, the U.S.? Is there any sort of, you know, is that the second half of this year? Yeah, I would say the predictions for Africa are particularly grim. My, my project is definitely focusing on Asia, but in terms of what I'm hearing and what analysts are saying about the impact it could have on Africa, there are just so many fragile health systems there. And we don't have a lot of cases in many African countries at the moment. Thankfully, it's been, um, you know, small numbers of cases um, and and fairly rapid responses. I think on one hand, African nations have seen how countries in Europe have reacted and how countries in the Asia-Pacific region have reacted. In a way, they've been able to, um, you know, lay down a plan based on what other countries have done before them, which is really great. But frankly, just because they have such fragile health systems in some of those countries, um, it it would mean that if there is an outbreak and if it does spread further than it has so far, it could be really devastating for those countries and for their health systems. So, yeah, I think all of the predictions for Africa are pretty grim and we're hoping, of course, that that doesn't happen. But it does mean that, especially for humanitarians, a lot of the focus is now shifting towards Africa to try and make sure that we can be ready for when things do get bad. Wow. All right. Is there a, a 
sort of timeline for that that you know of or just wait and see? Uh, look, I think it depends on each country. I mean, you know, as we know, Africa is not a country and there are many different economies at many different levels of, across that massive continent. Um, there's no particular timeline, but I would say that, I mean, one thing that Africa does have is that um, many countries in Africa are used to having um, serious disease outbreaks. So on one hand, while well, you've got people in Australia who are learning how to wash their hands for the first time in their life, <laughs> these kinds of, seriously, we had no idea, these kinds of things are, are, are very common to some African contexts. So, um, you know, dealing with yearly cholera outbreaks, for example, Ebola that struck several times. I mean, just last year in DRC, there was Ebola again, um, some Countries at the moment are looking at the prospect of handling Ebola, you know, and COVID-19 or COVID-19 and a cholera outbreak or and a malaria outbreak. So they're definitely countries that are used to um, dealing with quite serious outbreaks. It doesn't mean that they're always effective, but they, they have had years of people telling them how to wash their hands. Um, and I would say that is one area where they, they might be more advanced than us here in Australia. Um, but then you have the issues of, you know, access to clean water, access to soap, access to, um, you know, hand sanitizer and the things that you might need to protect yourself. Or just living in more crowded environments where the concept of physical distancing just isn't as easy as it might be for some of us in Australia. Fascinating. I heard the, I think... Some Southeast Asian countries responded very well, similar way, because they had SARS practice. Yeah, SARS practice and um, a very different culture when it comes to um, disease prevention, I would say. You know, there are a lot of countries in our region where it's quite common for you to wear a face mask if you have a cold, for example, because it's it's culturally acceptable for you to not want to spread that cold to other people. <laughs> what a crazy idea. <laughs> so it's a crazy concept, um, you know, so, so that kind of concept of, and, and culture of wearing a face mask was quite normal. So when the disease um, sprung up in those nations, everyone already had face masks. People knew where to get them. People knew uh, where to wear them. You know, they might not have known um, the intricacies of don't touch the face mask, here's how to dispose of them, you know, those kinds of things that we're all learning now. But definitely there was a culture of that. And in some countries, and you know, and definitely not for all of them, but in some there's also just more respect towards government um, government uh, orders, let's say. You know, if you look at a country like Japan, if the government uh, gives you orders on, on how you should uh, act as a social citizen, um, culturally people are more likely to listen to them and fall into line and, and to act that way. Whereas in Australia we like to think that we're rebels and we like to think that we, we know more than the government. It's just it's part of our national culture. So trying to institute some of these changes and trying to make us change our lifestyles for the, the greater social good can sometimes be a little bit more challenging. Thankfully, we you know Australia seems to have done reasonably well. Look, let's get into seven questions, which we ask every guest on this podcast. The first one is what will be different after the pandemic? Yeah, well, I would say I think for the area that I work in, which, you know, sometimes is referred to as risk communication, sometimes it's called communication with communities or community engagement. There's a whole heap of, you know, buzz terms that, that mean, you know, basically the same thing. But I think what COVID-19 has really done is is really shone a light on the power of rumours in a community and the impact they can have if, if people don't pay attention to the rumours that are spreading. 
I think, um, you know, from my perspective, the kind of programming that we do, we, we like to look at rumours as giving you the pulse of a community. You know, what information have they understood? What have they misunderstood? Who do they trust? You know, rumours are a really good early warning system to see um, risky behaviour that's developing, um, but also fears and anxieties and hope. And all of that information is just really super important for public health in particular, um, but also, you know, prevention of conflict or crisis. Rumours can be a, a huge early warning system for when, uh, you know, hate speech is bubbling up, for example, um, and you have crises that are about to erupt between or, you know, within a community. So I think for COVID-19, it's really shown that um, rumours are important. Funding is going towards rumours in a way that we just haven't seen in a crisis before. Um, rumours and, and paying attention to them has definitely been a thing in humanitarian aid in the last few years, and it's been slowly growing in popularity. But COVID's just blown it out of the water. I feel like every humanitarian donor at the moment is trying to put money towards understanding the rumours that people are spreading and, and trying to find ways to respond to them, which is great because it means you have organisations all over the globe, big and small and aid agencies and UN agencies and private sector as well, trying to find the best way to, to understand and then respond to the rumours. Um, because it's the responding that really makes a difference. You know, it, we we can listen to the rumours as much as we like, but if we, you know, continue to sit in our boardroom and, and keep that information amongst ourselves, it doesn't change anything that's actually happening in the, in the national conversation or the conversation in the community. Um, because I think, you know... I find rumours really fascinating. It's, it's, it's the thing that I, you know, live and breathe as part of this work. And I think the most interesting thing about them is that most people sharing rumours have no idea that their information they're not sharing is not true. Um, so, I mean, you definitely see, especially in this crisis, some examples of disinformation. There's been some really interesting studies of um, disinformation that's been spread from uh, some government actors around the world to try and disrupt communities, and that's, that's interesting in itself. But for most of the, the average people sharing information that isn't true, especially on social media, they just have no idea that what they're sharing isn't true. Um, there was some really interesting research that came out of MIT not that long ago that was looking at how rumours spread on social media. And, and what they found out was that, you know, rumours spread so much faster than fact. And, and quite often it's because rumours tap into really strong emotions that we have. So it might be, you know, anger or disgust or sadness or fear or joy, you know, these kinds of things really fuel the rumours and they, they make us think, oh, you know, I hope that's true or I really hope that's not true and people share them, you know, based on that because you have that strong human emotional reaction. So in COVID, you've got a bit of a perfect storm. People around the globe are a bit terrified. I'm not sure if you've noticed. Um, so that kind of national um, and international feeling of, of fear um, but also hope for things like vaccines, for example, really fuels people to share information and to either hope that it's true or, or really hope that it's not true, but either way they share it. So you create these information cascades where, you know, each time it's shared, it becomes a little bit more true in the eye of the person who sees that post. You know, how could a post that's been shared three million times not be true, right? Um, so <laughs> I think that's be, that's what has really changed for my line of work is I think it's really being taken seriously um, in this crisis. Um, and, I, and I hope that it will continue that way. I hope that it will continue to fund this as a serious part of aid work, but also a serious way of responding to crises in, it, in any context, whether you're in a, a low resource or a high resource nation, wherever you are, um, 
actually listening to your community and responding to what they're talking about or what they're feeling um, is a way to connect with them and a way to actually have them feel heard um, and build trust. So can you give me an example of some of the rumours that you're seeing happening sort of or pulsating through networks right now? So you definitely see the global discussion affecting the the social media rumours that we see in Southeast Asia. But then you also see rumours that pop up that take on a real a, a real cultural flavour of the country when they when they arrive there. So you see rumours moving their way across the region. There was one rumour that um, someone had basically doctored a video of a baby, and this baby apparently, you know, according to the rumour, was born and could speak as soon as it was born. Um, and it's a really badly doctored <laughs> video. Like I would say anyone looking at it would be would just be like, oh gosh that's terrible but you know some people have lower digital digital literacy right and also there's the hope that feels that it is true so the story is that baby was born the baby could talk and the baby said you have to eat boiled eggs before midnight on this particular date this is now back in march um and that will prevent you from getting covid and so that wow and so that spread around indonesia and was huge in indonesia it was spread one from people that believed it and two from people that thought it was hilarious, but then people who saw it on their feed and didn't realise that they were spreading it, you know, ironically, and then spread it further, right? And then so we saw that exact same rumour jump through Vietnam. When it landed in Vietnam, suddenly the eggs had to be dyed red before you ate them because, you know, red is such a significant cut. Uh, color in that culture there. Once it landed in the Philippines, a couple of days later, suddenly this baby was born in a region of the Philippines, not in Indonesia at all. And um, the baby was apparently the son of Jesus. So, you know, it took on a really strong um, religious nature there. When it landed in Thailand, the baby was now Buddhist. You know, so you, when we saw this, these rumors leapfrogging around every, you know, a few days later, it would land in another country. And then we saw it land in Africa about a week later. And in Uganda, people were saying that the, they were born in a region of Uganda. They were born near Entebbe, which is, you know, where the international airport is. Um, and the baby definitely said, eat boiled eggs. And so <laughs> you saw these rumors take on a really cultural flavor as they moved around the world. Um, and I mean, that's an example of a not a particularly risky rumor. Um, it, it did cause a surge of egg prices in a couple of those contexts, but it's not, it's not going to, um, it's hopefully not going to cause any deaths, but we're also seeing rumors around, you know, much riskier behavior. So the rumors around taking methamphetamines to treat COVID, for example, or rumors around people who have recovered from COVID, um, still being infected and still being super spreaders, for example. And so for some people that have recovered and survived this, this disease, not being allowed back in their villages, um, you know, people threatening violence against people that have recovered if they come anywhere near them, like serious violence. Some of the, the rumours that were spreading in Thailand were around, you know, burning people that come near them. Um, and then in India as well, you see, you know, really serious consequences of, of rumours spreading there where the anti-Muslim sentiment and, and issues that were already going on um, within community discourse there have just been fueled even further and, and real prejudice have, has come um, out of this COVID situation and, and has been fueled by it as well. Wow. There will be a link to a story about the Indonesian, Ugandan, who knows, a talking baby in the episode notes. So wherever you're listening now, check that out. That's that's crazy. I find myself stuck on the some people share it because it's funny, but then that also <laughs> it also like legitimizes it because it just sort of pushes it further out. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a thing. If you think about some of the things that we might share on our, our social media feeds, and you think about our parents, Some, I mean, I don't want to throw my dad under the bus here, but sometimes our humor is different. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So it's quite easy that I might say something that I think amongst my social group of friends is, you know, very witty and ironic, uh, that he takes as something that I've said that I genuinely believe. So it can so easily happen when you're looking at these huge social media networks um, and people that don't even know you often reading your posts, especially on, in, you know, on platforms like Twitter, which are so public. Um, yeah, the people reading your posts often have no idea who you are. Which begs the question, are you talking to social media networks about this, like Twitter and Facebook? Like, are they bothering to get involved in you know, the work that you're doing and basically helping to shut off the pipe to some of these dangerous rumours? Yeah, I would say that this crisis has also seen social media companies try to come to the table and try and play, or at least be expected to play more of a moral role in these crises. I mean, the last, you know, five to 10 years have seen quite a few incidences where social media has really been at the heart of fueling violence or fueling um, instability in particular regions. I mean, one example of that would be the Rohingya refugee crisis and some of the hate speech that was spreading on Facebook that they weren't able to stop. It became a real carrier for hate speech. You know, again, in India, WhatsApp groups being a real carrier for just, you know, a few months ago, um, causing, you know, serious violence against Muslim neighbourhoods um, in India. So social media companies, I think they realise that they have a role to play here. I think they're trying to work out exactly how to do it and where to draw the line. Um, they are definitely talking to UN agencies. They're definitely talking to us um, and, and trying to work out the best way that they can intervene and the, the best way that they can help in this crisis. I mean, you definitely will see on, on the surface level, you have um, platforms like Twitter and Facebook where um, it's very difficult now to um, post an ad, for example, about COVID-19. I mean, even for our project, our project is all about rumour tracking and, and about trying to stop rumours. But if we try and post an ad that has the word rumour or COVID um, in the text, it instantly gets shut down and instantly gets sent to someone to review because they really don't want people... Um, you know, adding to this crisis in that way. They, they also have, of course, their flagging system and, and we're linked in with that. So all of the rumours that we're collecting on social media, we also flag on Facebook and Twitter to be reviewed and re removed from the platform completely, which is, which is a really nice um, add-on to be able to add to our rumour tracking. You know, so often we're tracking rumours within refugee camps, for example, that are spread from, um, you know, spread from one person to another verbally, you know, from people talking to each other. And it's really hard to you know, press stop on those rumours, whereas at least um, being able to flag the rumours and have them removed from the platform does help a little bit to slow them down. Um, and I think, you know, they're definitely trying. I think there's a lot of a long way to go. Um, and I think that they're, they're trialing a few different types of, you know, AI, for example, to be, uh, to be able to try and pick up on these things faster um, and, and have less manual work in this. And I think the other interesting thing is as well is that you're seeing UN agencies and NGOs finally taking social influences seriously. Um, you know, I, I think in the past social influences as we think of them, you know, musicians or I don't know, um, people who look great in a bikini or whatever, UN agencies and NGOs just really wouldn't turn to them to help them spread quality information. But now you're, I mean, with our project, we're using social influencers, feeding them quality information that they can distribute to their networks of millions of followers. You're also seeing, you know, just yesterday, Red Cross announced that they're forming a 
global network of social influencers where they've brought on board a bunch of different social influencers in different contexts with millions of followers that are able to once again be fed quality information that they can send out to their their communities as it is you know wherever that community is because I think everyone's realizing that we can't just rely on those usual channels of experts and diplomats or, or even just I mean you know you've had celebrity ambassadors for UNICEF and people like that for a long time but but that we need to really step outside of that um, and to take information where people actually are, you know, not only try and share it amongst um, high-level, very white-collar circles on social media, but take the information where the people are that you want to hear it. Which um, is a good lead into question number two. What do you think will become obsolete in the communication that you're working in uh, after the pandemic's passed? I, I hope, and I, I'm not convinced, but I hope, I really hope that this um, this pandemic has shown organisations all over the world, especially aid agencies and governments, that this one-way messaging as the go-to format, format for risk communication just doesn't work. You know, just telling people wear a face mask just doesn't cut it in terms of communicating a pandemic. Every piece of information that you send to your community will always raise questions. You know, wear a face mask. Okay, what kind of face mask? How do I wear it safely? How much do face masks cost? Does everyone need to wear it? You know, the most simple of messages has so many questions. Yeah, is it okay to put rhinestones on your face mask? Actually, I saw yesterday that in Italy, there's now a fashion company selling what they're calling a trikini, where it's a bikini with a matching face mask. Great. Whatever. But <laughs> but I think, you know, that aside, which is amazing, um, but I really hope that, you know, this shows that even the most simple of instructions need to be delivered as a conversation. So you might start with, hey, guys, wear a face mask, but you need to be open and ready and willing to answer those follow-up questions and, and have systems in place to actually listen to them, listen to the questions that are coming from the community as follow-up and be ready to, to answer them quickly. You know, because if you don't, that's where you get those information gaps that get filled with rumours and misinformation and, and confusion. And I think, you know, what I also hope in terms of communicating in a crisis is that, I mean, before this, the mainstream conversation was, was very much focused on facts as a way to counter rumours or a catchy slogan. You know, for example, at the moment, there's a huge debate in the UK about the new stay alert message from Boris Johnson. And everyone's saying, well, what does alert mean? You know, before it was stay at home. Yeah, I can understand that. I know what my home is. What does alert mean? You know, and of course, we've heard that term used before in gov government terrorism messaging, you know, alert but not alarmed, for example. What does alert actually mean? I mean, it's very catchy, but it's ultimately not very practical advice. And on the other hand, I mean, you see governments going too far with advice or regulating how long it's safe to have a haircut, for example. So this kind of confusion around um, how to communicate risk to your community, I'm really hoping um, this crisis highlights where we're, we're really doing it wrong a lot um, and how important the words are. You know, you even saw, for example, WHO at the start of this crisis using social distancing and then really quickly realising that social distancing has a connotation of not socially connecting with our community, which, which is obviously not what we want people to do, and quickly shifting to physical distancing. Um, you know, you see, again, the Australian government struggling with terms like essential workers. What is an essential worker? What is essential, you know, as a label on terms of what someone does as an income to feed themselves and their family? You know, using these terms that aren't used in normal daily life. And it just leads to confusion because you're creating a term that might be very catchy, 
but you're also needing to teach your community community at the same time about what that term actually means. If people were a little more clear and actually spoke how people actually speak, they might find that people can understand what they're saying. I know this sounds like groundbreaking <laughs> statement, but um, I mean, the words you choose matters, but it also matters the language that you speak. And this again seems like something that is so blindingly obvious. Um, but you can't just assume, for example, that everyone speaks English or the lingua franca in the country you're in. I mean, you know, just last year in the Ebola crisis in Goma, in DRC, for example, you know, just last year, all of the health-related information that was going to the community was being delivered in French, which is the lingua franca of DRC. So everyone thought, fine, okay, people in DRC speak French, therefore I will give them all the Ebola information, you know, life or death information, let's be frank, in French. But in Goma, people are much more likely to speak Swahili. Some people might speak French, um, depending on the type of education they've had. Some people might speak French as a second or third language. But the language that they're much more comfortable in would be Swahili or other mother tongues. And this is just last year. So you've got people in those communities that have a really serious health crisis coming on them and not knowing or not being able to understand really complex health information that's being shared with them. So you had agencies or you and agencies and NGOs thinking they'd done their job. You know, I've made a poster that tells people how to avoid Ebola in French. Great. I've made a radio program that tells people how to avoid Ebola in French. Great. But if that isn't reaching huge sections of your community, of course that's not going to have the impact that you hope it will have. Um, and you see some great examples. I mean, even in Australia, you've got SBS distributing COVID info in more than 60 languages, which is quite phenomenal. That's amazing. And I think even in Australia, in this context, people forget that not everyone does understand complex health information in English. A lot of people do speak English. Some people don't speak English. But even people that speak English as a second, third or fourth language, health information is really complex. Um, so if you can actually deliver it in the right language, it's, it's going to be better understood. And if you can have that conversation in that person's language, they're going to be able to, again, ask those follow-up questions, understand them and find that, you know, find that reality in that, in that messaging and the instructions that you're giving them um, and be able to actually, you know, hopefully fight off uh, big pandemics like we're seeing at the moment. One common theme, you know, across all sort of areas, industries, disciplines has been that the pandemic has accelerated the sort of development of whatever work people are undertaking that's that's relevant obviously not in hospitality but technology communications are you seeing that public health information learning faster at the moment because of COVID-19? Yeah, definitely. I would say that um, there there are some go-tos that a lot of agencies around the world are using now that they wouldn't have necessarily used to the same level before. Um, I feel like almost every day someone tells me about a new chatbot that's been developed. Um, you know, WHO has many of them. Um, Red Cross um, in some regions of Eastern Africa are developing some new ones. Um, and these are great. You know, it, it once again, it's a way that communities can ask questions and get a response straight away rather than, you know, asking a question and then a month later having a radio program that addresses that question. Um, and, and that's seen some really nice uh, partnerships between the private sector and technology um, and aid. It's been an area, they call it ICT for D, like Information Communication Technology for Development. Ooh, another <laughs> yeah. fun acronym in a sea of acronyms, but... It's a really interesting area. You know, you see some organisations, for example, Translators Without Borders, which is one of our partners, 
that are using um, machine language learning so that you can develop these chatbots in really any language you like. You know, they're building up things like uh, machine um, computer-assisted translation technology for languages like Rohingya, for example, which is an oral language uh, and a language that really has had so little research done on it, there is no kind of um, agreed, standardised form of the language. So it's, you know, it's a very difficult language to try and build technology around because there isn't, you know, a dictionary that you can use, for example, like you have for standardised languages like English and Spanish and French and things like that. So you do see more money going towards addressing some of these really, you know, curly questions. Um, and, and I think that's great. I think there are some great ways that technology really can help in this crisis. But there are definitely, you know, areas of the world where technology doesn't help. You know, having just another app isn't always what a community needs. You know, having clean water and soap is sometimes more helpful or, you know, actually communicating through the ways they already access information. So for a lot of the world, if they have, you know, not as not as much access to electricity, um, you know, less options on television, these kinds of things, then radio is still king in so many contexts. So looking at ways that you can make radio interesting and educational, let's say, that word, um, is is really interesting. And, and that's not technology. That's just old school, good storytelling, you know, and that's that's just as important as in this crisis as new fancy AI or chatbots or these other, you know, methods that are being used because it's got to be something that fits the reality of the community that you're working with. This is question three. What should we be paying attention to now that will affect life, perhaps in some of the communities you're working with, after the pandemic? I think what I'm really concerned about, and and definitely something I'm seeing in some of the contexts across Asia that we're monitoring, is a real risk that with this focus on misinformation and, and disinformation, that we give governments quite a lot of room to close the space for free speech in their attempts to, to fight rumours. And, and I think that's it's, it's a really fine line because you do need, on one hand, you do need um, social media companies and you do need governments to play a role in trying to fight misinformation. But in this chaos and in, in many of the emergency orders that we're seeing um, around the region, it also really closes the space for free and fair journalism. So you have some countries, for example, that have said, you can only report on COVID-19 by referring to, you know, this, this one government body. You know, this is the only person you can interview about this topic and any other interviews, you know, even speaking to someone from the WHO or a doctor or, you know, um, talking to people in the community about how the, the crisis is affecting them on a daily life is banned. And I think that's that's really that's a really scary and a really challenging um, direction to be going in. And it's coming from a place of trying to control the narrative. And I and I see why. But I think it's it's also something that we really should be looking at as the pandemic hopefully passes, to try and see that we do see a rollback of these emergency restrictions and we don't see ongoing restrictions put in place um, across media activists and human rights defenders um, that they are allowed to play their role in this crisis because you know even in the crisis you do still need journalists and you do still need activists to be highlighting those issues of who is affected by this differently and and who is you know getting the short straw in the crisis because there's always someone there's always some marginalized group that is really getting a short straw Um, and so if you if you have this level of control that doesn't allow for that discourse I think that's really really scary and I think that's what we should be looking out for um, as as the crisis passes. Irene, 
positives, if we can turn a little bit more upbeat away from press restrictions and, you know, sort of <laughs> lots of... Lots Are you of... calling me a downer? <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying some of your subject matter doesn't lead to <laughs> clinking glasses of champagne and cheese boards. Look, I'll have you know, humanitarians are heavy drinkers, and there's. <laughs> Sorry, I'll I'll lift the mood. Go on. <laughs> there must be some positives that are coming from from the global pandemic. You know, that are going to make lives better for people. Uh, are, there, are there any examples that you can find or that you can perceive um, in your in your work? I think there are there are some positives to be found. Um, I like to think that there is always a silver lining, even in a pandemic. I think I know something that we'll see and have seen in workplaces across the world, you know, in Australia, but also in humanitarian contexts, is those more flexible workplaces. And I think that openness to working from home and flexible hours and flexible time zones, people actually taking sick days when they're sick, crazy concept. I think these things are actually really positive and it has given us a chance to sit back and take stock of the way that we were living our lives and pushing ourselves to the limit. I think um, specifically for humanitarians, I think... In many of these contexts, I mean, people may not be aware, but often in a humanitarian crisis, you'll have um, you'll have national organisations that are made up of people that work from that country, and you'll have international NGOs. You know, your Oxfam, Save the Children, these kinds of organisations that we've all heard of before, and your UN agencies, you know, UNICEF, WHO, all of these, and they're a mix of people that live in that country. You know, they call them national staff and expats. Um, and, and there's been a real push over the last, you know, five or so years for that uh, that balance of power of expats always being the managers and expats being the experts to be really turned on its head and for more power to be given to the people that are actually from the context where the crisis is happening. Because at the end of the day, they, one, they speak the language usually. That's, a, once again, a really great start. Um, but they know the context. They know their culture so inherently that they're, they're actually the perfect expert in that um, environment to be able to come up with local solutions to local problems. Um, so because, um, because of COVID and because a lot of humanitarian crises are in countries with quite fragile health systems, it's meant that um, the crisis has meant that a lot of expats went home when the crisis happened. A lot of them were evacuated out of these humanitarian contexts, leaving very few um, of these types of workers in the country um, as you know, as they battled COVID-19, which is a terrible thing um, to, to think about, really. You know, really when the, I hope I can swear, but really when the shit hits the fan, that's when the expats leave. Um, and, you know, I also acknowledge that I, you know, I'm part of that problem. I, too, am an expat. But I really hope that this will show that there can be more power put towards the national staff that are from that country and that we can really push towards this localization of an aid effort so that we have expats as, you know, advisors when it's needed, um, if there are particular technical areas where advice or guidance is needed, but that power of actually running a response in a natural disaster or in a conflict, so much of that power can go to those national organisations and those national staff. And I think for humanitarian work, it's going to make it, look, if we can continue this way, much more respectful and much more efficient um, because you're not going to have um, very high-paid experts being flown into a context where they've never lived, they don't speak the language, and give some, you know, wonderful theories of change based on their master's thesis of five years ago, uh, which ultimately just doesn't fit the context. 
So I think it's going to be good. I, I really hope aid will be better after this. How long do you think that that might take to sort of wash through the system? Travel restrictions might help because I don't think Australians are going anywhere anytime soon, being on this sort of safe haven continent that we've managed to sort of fence off pretty effectively over the last decade. Yeah, I honestly think travel restrictions are going to play a huge role in that. You know, especially if you think of some contexts in Africa that haven't yet really hit their peak for COVID-19. The, it sounds terrible, but the longer they can keep those experts out of the country, the longer they can show that, you know, at the end of the day, those first responders from the actual community have this massive wealth of knowledge and can really prove themselves. And and hopefully as well, and it's terrible to put it in these terms, but being NGOs and UN agencies will start to realise that it's really expensive to fly in, you know, so-called experts from Geneva or from New York all of the time. These people demand massive salaries, massive amounts of danger pay. You have to pay for all of their accommodation while they're away. You have to pay for every six weeks they go on what's called R&R, so a week or two holiday that you also pay for. You know, there's a huge amount of cost um, built into the way that the aid system is currently constructed. And I just like, I look at that amount of money and the amount of money, if you think, you know, WHO even is saving by not having people in country at the moment. If you inject that back into, you know, building the capacity of the, the first responders that are already in that country, oh man, you could hire so many people. Imagine what you could do. Imagine the doctors you could pay. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> Or even fund education for, so that five years you've got a, a doctor rather than a master's thesis from an international university that might not be relevant. Yeah, and look, I'm not an idiot. I get that people that, that demand very high wages like to hang on to their high wages and their lifestyle. You know, I, I don't by any means think that COVID is going to pass and they're going to say, no, don't worry, don't pay me as much. I, I have no need for these trinkets. It's going to be a, it, it's not going to be an instantaneous change, but I, I do hope it's been a bit of a wake up call to show them that, that there is a different way to do it. So how, this is question five, how do you think you'll describe the pandemic? How do you think you'll describe it to somebody in the future that didn't experience it? What do you reckon you'll say? Ah. Uh, it's just weird, isn't it? <laughs> it sucks. I mean, I'd like to <laughs> – I thought about this question a lot when you sent it to me and I thought what what kind of highly evolved and poetic answer could I give? But honestly, I wake up every day and it's just still so surreal. I mean, people keep calling it the new normal and I guess my new normal is getting up every day and wearing stretchy clothing and very rarely leaving the house. One thing I think the crisis has shown us is that I know people all around the world in all different contexts and cultures and languages actually react really similarly in a crisis. And so I hope in one way or another this has kind of helped us to understand more of a, I don't know, maybe have a more global mentality about ourselves. But once again, you know, that's a hope. I, I, I think I ultimately fear that when things go back to normal, everything will just go back to normal and we'll almost forget that any of this happened. So, yeah, I don't know. It's been very strange. And it's also been very strange as well to see uh, the kinds of conspiracy theories and, and rumours that circulate around Australia, for example, a country with super high accesses, access to education and really high access to social welfare and, you know, a great safety net for people. Um, you know, we're seeing huge amounts of money at the moment being spent to try and keep our community bubbling along. Of course, not everyone's getting it, unfortunately, but, you know, it's trying. Um, 
but it's it's strange to see for me because I'm normally normally focusing on such different contexts. It's very strange to see the kind of information that still gets spread even in a context like Australia. You know, this five G stuff and Bill Gates rumors and things like that. They just they blow they blow my mind a bit. Yeah, crazy. And like I, mm. I think it was um, a, the technology editor from the Guardian uh, had a great recent tweet um, lately where he said. It showed the, a video of people protesting outside Victorian Parliament, you know, saying arrest Bill Gates. And said, you know, predictably, two weeks after America's, you know, Facebook outrage of coronavirus conspiracy theories, you know, Australians kick into gear. We're late to the party, but we turn up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Albeit in smaller numbers, but that's because, you know, there's only 25 million of us here. Question six, if you were to write a book, film or TV series, about your experience through the global pandemic, what do you think you'd call it? Yeah, <laughs> I thought a lot about this one as well. And and because I feel like I'm spending my, my whole day in, in my house until my partner gets home at around 5pm at night, he still has a relatively normal life, um, I thought that I would call the book Judy's at the Door because Judy is my postman and I see her most days, <laughs> and she's kind of the, the only other human I've, I've really been seeing. I mean, sometimes, occasionally, I go for a walk with friends, of course, but the, the highlight of having Judy at the door, and I wonder what that package is going to be. Yeah, I think Judy's been a really big um, a big character in my corona story so far. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. Shout out to you. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Judy. Good on you, Judy. Good work. And after we all get through this, what do you think is going to be different in your sort of daily working life? Is there have you have you made changes that you're going to stick with? The, the stretchy clothing is going to be something to hold on to. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not going anywhere. Let's be honest. Um, I I'm not sure that. I mean, I think I think there's there has to be some changes. One one thing that has been nice from this. Um, all of the physical distancing measures has been having a lot more one-on-one time with friends um, because the government has forced us to do that. And that, in a way, that's been really nice. I've been doing a lot of long walks and, and one-on-one chats with friends. Um, you know, I think before our go-to was let's go to the pub and let's all have a, a fun time and let's all, you know, shout our opinions over the top of each other and all get very excited, uh, which is great. I love that a lot. But actually having some quiet one-on-one time has been really nice. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will still remain an element in my life. Um, I've been working from home for a while, so that wasn't a big shift for me. But it has been really interesting seeing that, um, you know, discussions in the national media, for example, around working from home suddenly being a thing. And maybe me realising that the way I do it isn't particularly healthy. So that's um, something that I'm trying to work on, working less hours and trying to actually stop at some stage. So that would be good. Um, and you know, and I really feel for a lot of people working from home at the moment, obviously it's hard when you've got kids around, but it's also hard for people that are in share houses. And I think that's something that probably hasn't so much been part of the the national discourse is, you know, trying to remain really professional while huddled around a kitchen table with three other people. Or if you're in a house where some of your housemates are now unemployed, unfortunately, but you're still trying to be a professional within the same very small space. I mean, I heard it the other day of a lawyer, for example, who it's quite a high up lawyer and shares an apartment with just one other person, but that one other person is now unemployed. So he's spending almost his entire day working from his bedroom because if he went into the, the common space, the kitchen area or the lounge room, 
you know, his housemate would, you know, quite rightly be watching a movie or playing Crash Bandicoot or, you know, whatever people do when they're unemployed and are very much entitled to do. So I think everyone's working in a bit of a weird environment at the moment. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think what will be different in my life is I will try and build more structure. How about that? I'll try and do this working from home thing a little bit better. Well, that's good. That's uh, That seems like a reasonably community-minded uh, thing where you're, you're recognising other people taking on board, you know, how to be better and I like that. There will be uh, listeners much more links and information uh, in the episode notes so have a look at that where you're listening now. Irene, thank you so much for taking time out of your global day. Much appreciated. No worries. Nice chatting with you. Post-Pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgin.